Eating Smoke by Chris Thrall. The true story of one man's descent into drug psychosis in Hong Kong's triad heartland. Read by Nicholas Atkinson, Part 1. In 2004, I worked in a mental health unit. People often ask, how can you stand it with all those nutters? I'd quote from the textbook, it's a misunderstood condition affecting one in four people at some stage of their lives. I never told them the real reason. I worried that the knowledge might confuse them. You see, in 1996, I went mad. Now, this isn't necessarily as bad as it sounds. The UK has plenty of systems in place to help people who throw wobblers. Doctors, medicine, hospitals, not to mention incapacity benefit and God. Unfortunately, those comforts were in short supply when it happened to me. Therefore, I must warn you, if your mind is planning on playing an away game, taking a sabbatical or simply sodding off, don't for Christ's sake let it happen while working as a nightclub doorman in Hong Kong. Corporal Thrall, you're unhappy with the Royal Marines, probed the commanding officer. No, sir, I replied. I've had a great time in the Royal Marines. I just take issue with you sending Corporal Johns to prison for two months for having his hair half an inch too long, especially as he has a wife and kids and a clean conduct record. Sir, I referred to a recent disciplinary, one instigated by our regimental sergeant major who happened to be standing three feet away. This is the Royal Marines, Corporal Thrall. We have to have that discipline, you understand? Yes, sir. That's why I'm leaving. It was a fitting answer when discipline equates to kangaroo court logic. Well, I wish you all the very best of luck outside, Mr. Thrall. You're dismissed. He scowled at me as I walked out of Stonehouse Barracks' huge iron gates for the last time. But I didn't mind. I'd built a multinational sales organisation from humble beginnings in Plymouth, and it had been pulling in the big bucks in Hong Kong. The personal attack alarm sold me on becoming an independent distributor for Quorum, a network marketing venture. I knew on a camp of 500 Marines, many of whom saw their partners infrequently, selling the concept of security via pocket-sized I-don't-want-the-missus-to-be-attacked alarms would be a doddle. By my third week, I'd sold enough plastic spouse protectors to scale the promotion ladder, reaching the dizzy heights of senior executive. Whilst serving out my notice, I continued to sell Quorum products. But, unfortunately, had to give refunds for all the home alarms. The supersonic booms of Concord were setting off their pressure sensors. This didn't stop me from sponsoring a significant number of distributors into my network, which now span the UK and Europe. Yet, despite my promotion to silver executive, two positions away from financial freedom for life, I slid into debt. It cost a fortune holding meetings in lavish hotel rooms and making trips abroad. Then, six months prior to leaving the military, I'd invited Wayne Flash Gordon to a business presentation. His reply had been frank. I'm not interested, but I met a guy, Vance Lee, in the Hong Kong Army who will be. Is your company opening up there? Nah, mate. But if it does, you'll be the first to know. I arrived back at my office, a part of the kitchen I'd upgraded with a desk, fax machine and handheld electric whisk, and picked up a fax announcing Quorum's Hong Kong launch. During a telephone call to Vance, he declared, without asking what it was really about, he would start straight away. 
True to his word, he built Quorum's largest network in Hong Kong and China. It was only the start of the Asia-Pacific operation, and I was receiving 3% of a monthly turnover that was already 100,000 US dollars. I belonged elsewhere, in Hong Kong, the business capital of the world. Winging my way towards the throbbing metropolis, I had it all on the line, and my anxiety levels continued to rise. For a start, I was seven grand in debt to the bank and credit card companies. Also, I'd rented my house out to a dizzy, blonde friend of a friend, and I just knew there'd be a problem with the rent. And she'd take half my furnishings with her when she moved in with the first joker she met out on Plymouth's Union Street. And the crucial issue was the products on which I bet my success. It was turning into a consumer electronic joke. The personal attack alarms continued to be a big seller, but the burglar alarms still insisted on informing homeowners that the passengers and crew of Concorde were only 30,000 feet away, so ready the baseball bat. The garden shed alarm was so crap, you could guarantee it would be the only item left behind after your shed was broken into and all your possessions, including the shed itself, stolen. And the quorum bicycle alarm intended to set off firecrackers in the Chinese market, cost eight times more than the actual bike. Kaitak Airport had a landing like no other. The pilot initiated a diving turn over the emerald green South China Sea to fly by the skyscrapers hugging the knuckle-whitening approach. Flashing my military ID, I passed straight through the residence channel at immigration. Immersed in the heat... I navigated the vibrant throng to nab a seat on the A2 bus heading towards Admiralty, where HMS Tamar, the Royal Navy barracks, stood on the island's magnificent waterfront. As I boarded the bus, an overly made-up crone stinking of booze thrust a business card at me. Printed in gold letters was Chunking Mansions Bamboo Guesthouse. You stay here, she ordered. While the bus forged through Kowloon's bustling traffic... Red taxis, Rolls Royces, souped-up hatchbacks and triad-driven minibuses. Heading for the Cross Harbour Tunnel, I turned my thoughts to securing free accommodation in this expensive city. On previous visits, I'd show my ID to the Gurkha rifleman at the base's pristine white gates. He'd salute me together with a Sup! for my white face, not my lowly rank. Now, I threw him an appreciative smile and breezed on in to inquire at the guardroom. Are there any bootnecks around, Corporal? Several Marines from the speedboat squadron were relaxing in the accommodation block, congratulating themselves on a haul of cocaine they'd seized the previous day from a junk in the sound. I resisted the temptation of asking if they had any of the good stuff put aside, instead introducing myself and inquiring about a room. I soon settled into a well-worn one with a spectacular view of Victoria Harbour, its blue-green waters ruffled by the gentle breeze and the giant towers of commerce reaching greedily up into the delicate azure above Central District. I threw my military bergen onto the faded orange bed cover, then ducked under the shower, all the time looking forward to meeting Vance in the nearby tube station. Stocky, handsome, and slightly shorter than my five foot eight, Vance had a kind face, never far from a smile. Everything he said or did was unassuming and genuine. Hello, mate! Lay home, I replied. Mr. Lee laughed. Well, the business, he began, and I smiled. Vance, due to the ethos of Hong Kong life, always began a conversation with a summary of the business. 
Having travelled over to Kowloon on the mass transit railway, we sat down in one of Chimsa Choi's plush eating parlours. Sitting in the exquisitely carved redwood chairs, sipping jasmine tea in the ambience created by the lanterns overhead, beautiful in red with their decorative ideographs, Vance addressed the issue of the business, or lack of it. He explained how he put our distributors on hold, saying better products were in the pipeline, adding, The people only bash their head against the wall so many times before they don't come to the wall anymore. He was right, and I would go and confront Winston Wong, the director of Quorum Asia Pacific, right after our meal. When I got up to leave to go back over to the island, Vance grabbed my arm. Quisa, you promised me that this business would work. I'm sorry, Vance. I really thought it would, mate. I took the MTR three stops to Causeway Bay, entered an imposing skyscraper and took the lift to the 12th floor. After introductions, Winston said the Asia-Pacific operation was going well. But when I probed him on the quality of the recent products, he said, You and your distributor don't work hard enough! Without saying another word, I stood up and walked out, leaving Quorum International never to return. The next morning, an orderly came to my room, saying I had to call the adjutant at the naval base right away. Ah, our mysterious marine. What in God's name do you think you're doing, stowing away on our camp? You'll report to me right away, you understand? Don't you know that any serviceman entering the territory has to ask for crown permission first? He slammed down the phone. Report to me right away? Not bloody likely, I thought. I grabbed my gear and bugged out of the crown's property. In a telephone call to Vance, he came to my rescue once more, offering me a room in his apartment. I stepped out of the station into Mongkok, the most heavily populated square mile on the planet, and began to make my way through a frenetic mass of pedestrians. Elaborate facades sold everything from Rolex watches to dried tiger penis, and a cacophony of traffic noise complemented the vivid, clashing colours of signs anchored to building walls. Vance's apartment was on the ground floor. It was the only one without a shrine outside. Typical of Vance. No time for sentiment, only for the business. He greeted me. How's it going, mate? Not too bad. You? I felt exhausted. Well, the business, Vance, for f... Sod the business. I had to be mindful of my profanity, as Vance never swore. Winston's an idiot, and Quorum's going nowhere. As usual, his place was brimming with characters many of them Filipinas from the service community, befriended by Vance through his marketing ventures. His good-natured wife, Lim, was at the local pool giving kids swimming lessons. Vance ushered me through a tiny, antiquated kitchen into a shoddy office tacked onto the back of the apartment. Hintak mansions surrounded a quadrangle the size of a tennis court. The other ground-floor tenants had built similar do-it-yourself affairs to capitalise on extra space. "'This is your room,' said Vance." and left me to settle in amongst the desks and chairs. Sitting down on a flimsy camp bed, I heard a voice round the door. Hello? Can I come in? Yeah, come in. I looked over to see the large beaming mug of Benny Jung enter the room. Wearing a smart suit and kind eyes behind silver-framed spectacles, he seemed the same age as me. How you doing? he asked softly, perching on the bed. I'm one of your distributor, you know? So how you like your room? he inquired, adding with a look of concern. You know there is a very big problem here. Why is that, Benny? It's a ghost, he said with conviction. This room, full of them.
I awoke early on the khaki cot. Sleeping had proved difficult anyway. The aircon swapped tropic for Baltic and was as noisy as a lawnmower. Also, I kept hearing weird scurrying noises coming from the false ceiling. Entering the living room, I found Vance in the middle of a rigorous press-up routine. He had an appointment, so he suggested a quick McDonald's. Concerned about my finances, I happily agreed. On the way, I picked up the local English newspaper. Back at the apartment, I flicked to find the job sheets. One post caught my attention. Foreign, English-speaking people with white faces, American, English, French, for example, required to work in successful computer company in Xinguan. Good rates of pay, Mr. Fang at Gung Wang Hong. 38 lines. I arrived at Wing War Street drenched in sweat and took the lift to the seventh floor, stepping out to plush surrounds of gilt, glass, polished stone and the smiles of four young women sat behind a leather and marble reception desk. I assumed that these charmers had the onerous task of answering the 38 phone lines. Ushered through a door, I saw Western and Chinese workers buzzing about stacks of paper while others sat at desks or queued for the water cooler, photocopier or a row of chattering fax machines. Files were stacked on every surface alongside coffee-stained mugs and dated office equipment. A stunning Eurasian stepped forward, introducing herself as Jenny from Canada. Her miniskirt was so ridiculously succinct that when she leaned over the boss's desk to tell him I'd arrived, it wasn't hard to see where Mr Fang was at. Dirty old dog, I thought. In his late sixties, he wore a lurid Japanese motor racing shirt covered in advertising patches. Below this three-quarter-length ice-white jeans and dazzling sports shoes, and wrapped around him three weighty gold necklaces, a bracelet and a Rolex. He sat there snake-like, a super-length marlboro in the corner of his mouth. Mr Fang doesn't speak much English, so I'll interpret, announced Jenny. She began by explaining the company traded in computer chips and peripherals. Fang Sen made no eye contact with me, preferring to fix his gaze on his saucy assistant. Through her... He probed me with blunt inquiry. What have you sold? was the first question. He seemed easily impressed, questioning me as to the markup and my turnover. I waffled a few statistics, which seemed to do the trick. Mr. Fang likes you, Jenny said. And because you have previous sales experience, you can start right away on 12,000 a month. The next day, after wishing Joe San to the girls in the extravagant foyer, I went through into the office itself, where Dennis Chang, a young British-born Chinese, pounced on me. He showed me to a desk and said to sit down and wait. I twiddled my thumbs while telephones rang and business deals were conducted. I wondered if I should be sharpening pencils or nipping out to grab the boss a coffee. I thought time was money. Finally, Fang rustled something into the ear of Chang who spoke to a Westerner who made his way over. John was a laid-back English chap, wearing horn-rimmed glasses, an easy smile and a loose tie. He led me to the boardroom for my induction into the art of selling computer chips. John showed me a motherboard and began explaining the functions of the microchips plugged into it, DRAM memory chips being the company's core business. After that, I had a few questions of my own. John, how did you become international sales manager? And what's your degree? I don't have a degree, he chuckled. And I'm not international sales manager. Up until six months ago, I worked at McDonald's. But you must have some experience. 
You don't get it, mate. Fang just wants clients to see a shitload of white faces, so it makes Gung Wong Hong look like the biggest cheese-trading DRAM in Asia. Is that the reason for the 38 phone lines? Is that bullshit? Exactly. It's why it says on the business card that Gung Wong Hong owns the whole of the seventh floor and three rooms on the third. The discussion moved on to office personalities. Fang had amassed his first million in the 70s by trading in quartz crystal digital watch movements. He recognised the market for memory chips when the personal computer craze kicked off. These small black chunks of silicon were actually worth their weight in gold, and because electronic giants like Samsung restricted production, they traded in the same way. Fang grabbed a massive piece of the pie, multiplying his millions several times over. Fang insisted staff be in for work at eight and not leave until seven at night, figuring they couldn't then play the market in their own time. Sandra, his wife, was senior manager. Pretty and demure, she was the opposite of her oddball husband, even sitting in a separate office to him and his nubile assistant. Dennis Chang was general manager. John explained that being British presented Chang with an identity conflict. Ken Kwok, on the other hand, was an affable 24-year-old Canadian, a real workhorse. He dealt with the East-West conundrum without sweat and was always willing to have a laugh when he wasn't hammering out deals to all four corners of the globe. My attention turned to the faxes John dropped on my desk. He explained that after a company produces a product, a few hundred thousand musical keyboards, for example, they put the chips, transistors. Capacitors and diodes left over up for sale. It seemed a simple job of matching components listed as wanted with those being offered, but with a TI zero nine three four five seven B serving a completely different function to a TI zero nine three four five seven C, it was harder than it looked. Later in the day, Andrew McAvoy, a young British backpacker, joined the microchip mayhem. He was staying in the legendary Chungking mansions. John had mentioned it was something of a roach palace. But popular with shoestring travellers, I don't suppose you're staying in the bamboo guesthouse, Andy. He shot me a look. How'd you know that? We both laughed at the thought of the old girl homing in on every cheap-assed arrival. Yeah, I'm in one of the dormitories. Andy went on to say he'd been smoking weed with a girl in the backpackers, so I asked if he could get me some. Nah, mate, just go to Chungking. You'll get hold of it. I decided a trip to Chimsar Choi was on the cards. I approached a young tough outside Chungking, hawking fake watches on the street. After a suspicious glance up and down the pavement, he beckoned me to follow him. We entered a busy concourse, passing curry houses, African bistros, sari shops, and other outlets catering to the comforts of faraway homes. He took me down a flight of stairs and into a basement office. Sitting in the only chair was an older triad with a far-out hairdo. Leaning against the walls were several younger accomplices in tracksuit tops. The guide pulled open a drawer stuffed with plastic bags, some containing fake watches, others pillow-sized clumps of weed. How much you want? He asked. Enough for a few joints, please. I replied, feeling slightly stupid. He cracked a joke with his understudies, then ripped a few buds from one of the bagged-up bushes, wrapped them in newspaper, and thrust the package across the tabletop. I paid a hundred Hong Kong dollars and headed for a shrubbery hideaway in Kowloon Park. The next day, when I arrived at work, a short, stocky chap with curly hair was already at his desk. He stood up immediately and, with an idiotic grin spreading freckles around sky blue eyes, bounded over like an excited puppy. "Hi," he announced. "I'm Neil Diamond. I'm a paranoid schizophrenic." 
Neil's story was both incredible and bloody hilarious. Born in Kenya to British parents, Neil's favourite pastime was investigating all things creepy-crawly. While living in the UK, he'd been exploring a ditch behind his parents' home. His neighbour approached, accusing Neil of spying on his wife. No, sir. I'm just looking for slugs, he said. Don't be daft, the guy replied. I'm calling the police. Neil said, matter-of-factly, I thought he was going to hit me, so I broke his jaw, as if it was an inevitable course of action. Not yet diagnosed, Neil received a conviction for GBH and ended up in strange ways, in time for the massive riot in 1990, when prisoners set it on fire to protest the squalid conditions. He didn't intend to join in the mayhem created by Britain's hardest criminals. When a fellow inmate unlocked Neil's cell, all he wanted to do was find his civilian clothes. After this, he knocked out some ceiling tiles with a broom handle to let out the choking smoke. Another prisoner shouted, Good idea, mate! Let's get on the roof! And the infamous mutiny, broadcast on news channels around the world, had begun. The next person awarded the title of Director of International Sales was Gary King. Short of stature, slight of build and blonde head, Gary wore silver-framed specks in front of eyes like a cartoon worm. He came from London's East End and, true to his tough upbringing, was out to pull the rug from under the plates of meat and egocentric big heads like Fang by ripping them off any way he could. Gary and I soon realised the best way to kill the monotony of the Hong was to go up on the roof and smoke a big fat joint. The mate he lived with survived by selling ecstasy tablets smuggled from the UK. One afternoon, as we chuffed away watching people on the street below, he asked if I'd ever tried ice. No, mate. What is it? Crystal meth, he explained, was a drug manufactured in underground labs in the Philippines and smuggled into Hong Kong in abundance. It was speed, refined to a crystalline form, hence the name. Gary said it was the most addictive drug ever produced, and it sent people Looney Tunes. Then joining our party came Ronald Dennison, or Old Ron as he would become. Late thirties, Ron was a gangly individual with black balding hair slicked back above nervous brown eyes set into the gaunt sockets of an ashen face. He dressed in an expensive pinstripe suit, but it was far too big, flapping around his skinny frame. Ron took every opportunity to present himself as Mr Big Shot, saying that running a successful finance company in London had become boring, so he moved to Hong Kong for a change of scene. Ron also launched an annoying habit of calling me Marine Boy when he wasn't busy saying, Jardi, Jardi, in a Hindi accent, which I assumed meant hurry up. So that was our expatriated clique, John, Andrew, Neil, Gary, Ron and me. After work, Gary and I had taken to visiting a nearby Dai Pai Dong. One evening, two local men invited us to their table. In reciprocation, we bought the beers. As we were getting to know our hosts, one of them, with pride, presented me with a business card. Jung Lai Kwong, Royal Hong Kong Police, Organised Crime and Triad Bureau. I was intrigued, having seen newspaper coverage of a recent police raid in which they arrested 50 or so men in a factory... I couldn't wait to hear the triad police's take. These guys took on the Sung Yi On, the 14K and the War Sing War, to name a few of the violent clans, and these are not people you mess around with. I saw less of Vance as the weeks flew by. I spent my free time with English friends, or on the secluded bench near Hing Tak, smoking weed and getting lost in thought. Occasionally, when Mr Liu, an unfriendly business acquaintance of Vance's wasn't around, we would play cards and drink Chinese wine. 
Benny and Larry delighted in teaching me Chinese, listening intently as I repeated the phrases, laughing when I got them right. During one of our card games, Mr Liu arrived, so I retired to my room. I decided to find out what the weird noises were. Standing on my army cot, I used a mop handle to knock out one of the polystyrene panels. A shower of black pellets rained down. Bloody rat shit. They must have infested the place for years, as there was a four-inch layer of droppings. As I stood there, I heard the scraping of tiny, or not-so-very-tiny feet, clawing their way up inside a piece of metal conduit bolted to the wall. Appearing at the top of the duct, and peering with curiosity at me, was the head of an enormous rat. A few minutes later, Vance entered the room, laughing to find me lying in ambush. Vance's mood was melancholic. He began to talk about the business, hinting that he was into the last of his savings. I apologised again. The majority of network marketers fail miserably, but we'd have succeeded if the product line had held up, which it hadn't. No problem, said Vance. You know, Chris, I hope that one day we can make our fortune together. Ah, Vance, me too. Back behind the desk, I drummed my fingers, wondering how to break up the soul-sucking boredom. I decided a trip to the toilet would add a full-on and mental bent to the day, and I wasn't wrong. Standing at the urinal, I wondered what the unusual smell was coming from the cubicle. He took a square of folded-up foil from his trouser pocket, smoothed it into a V-shaped chute, and asked, Have you ever tried ice? Nah, mate. Heard about it, though. Groping in his underpants, he retrieved a small plastic wrap containing a gram of white crystals and then handed me a rolled-up banknote. After sprinkling the drug onto the foil, he held it at a tilt and began heating it with a lighter. Well, smoke some of this. The crystals vaporised into sweet-tasting wisps, and I hoovered them up. And as Neil carefully tilted the foil the other way, I knew I'd been reunited with a long-lost friend. Sat at my desk for the afternoon, I experienced an amazing sense of well-being. As if slowly becoming drunk on fine champagne, but without the clouded thoughts that alcohol induces. It far surpassed any high of the party prescriptions peddled in the dance clubs back home. Shivers flowed up and down my spine, nerves tingled all over, and supreme confidence and positivity radiated from every cell within. The moment 7pm struck, I was out of my seat and on a mission to Chungking. Mark was a Ghanaian immigrant who scratched a living selling drugs out of the seediest part of the most decrepit tower block. I'd met him before when Neil suggested we score some grass. Mark rolled a huge spliff, took a couple of puffs and passed it to me. As I put it to my lips, he said, Dab was up on Nigerian's arse this morning, throwing his head with a <laughs> He sat on his bed with two American lads crammed on plastic chairs beside him. Busy rolling a reefer, they looked to be of high school age. They introduced themselves as Brad and Cliff, but seemed the last two people you'd expect to find in this devil-forsaken dump. I asked Mark if he had any ice, but was gutted when he said he'd just sold his last hundred-dollar deal. I got some number four, he said, punting his heroin. We used to do that all the time, but got bored, said Brad. What's it like? It's all right, but these days we just stick to weed or ice. What? You guys take ice. I was amazed at how indifferent these 16-year-olds were when it came to dabbling with hard drugs. Yeah, it's great for school when you've got like an assignment to hand in and you've had to stay up all night. So how'd you take this number four then? 
Being a good role model, I thought it only proper to empower the teenagers. Mark set up the tinfoil as Neil had done earlier, and then did the tilty slidey thing. I sucked the smoke deep into my lungs. It's really 